Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Trojan fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Wednesday. Today we're going to talk with Dan Weber, USCFootball.com, great beat writer and columnist. He's going to join the show and talk about everything that's going on with USC, some of the game times that were announced, uh, some of the NCAA stuff with Todd McNair, some interesting developments in that case that keeps going on and on, and we'll talk to him about that and, of course, answer your questions. If you have questions for Dan, or me, or Coach Harvey Hyde, or Gerard Martinez, anyone on the podcast, you can just email us, podcast at uscfootball.com. Uh, you can leave a voicemail as well, a couple different ways. Call 641-715-3900, extension 816-646, or go to our website, peristylepodcast.com, and click on the left side of the page to leave a voicemail. Um, you can also go to itunes.com slash peristylepodcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes, great way to get it. It'll go right to your device every time we put up a new episode, which we're doing, of course, right now. Without further ado, let's get into that new episode and talk with Dan Weber. Dan, how's it going, man? Doing good. Doing good. You're getting some news this week. Uh, so uh, uh, I think once they start releasing all the kickoff times and TV times as they uh, as they did today, uh, you get a sense of, okay, seasons, uh, it's coming. It's going to be here. and. Uh, so uh, I think that helps every little bit, helps, uh, you know, focus on uh, on the near future. Yeah, the, uh, the, the future is getting nearer. We're under 100 days uh, left until the football season begins. So that should be very interesting. But we got we found out some game times today, uh, Dan. Uh, maybe we want to talk about that a little bit and uh, see, you know, of course, the a, a, a West Coast game starting before noon is kind of interesting. That's one of the ones. But maybe talk about what your thoughts overall on the new game times. Yeah, uh, I think it's a little surprising that the uh, uh, the one game uh, in the first uh, four, and we now know five game times, but in the first four that they announced, uh, uh, we know that the uh, Utah State game, uh, the only home game in the first four, will be at uh, 11 o'clock kickoff, which I don't know. I think that's a better game than, than you're looking at. Uh, Colorado gets a 2.30 start, and um, boom, boom, boom. Uh, there's also a 2 p.m. start. So you've got two Pac-12 network games that are starting at more traditional uh, you know, TV time. <clears throat> so I don't know. It, it just seems a little odd that USC would, would get that 11 o'clock start. But, uh, you know, hey. That's uh, it's the Pac-12. So what do you, what do you expect? And we also found out that uh, uh, USC is going to get a 7:30 start, which is the correct time that, for the Cal game, which is the Thursday night game at the Coliseum. Uh, you can't you can't try to start one earlier than that. You really can't. So uh, so that's not a bad deal. The uh, Stanford game will go at uh, five o'clock, and uh, you know be the eight o'clock national game. And um, uh, I guess the Friday game after that at, at Salt Lake City at Utah will go at six o'clock. Uh, so, and they're on all the different networks. They're spread out uh, among the networks. And we already knew 
the Alabama game was going to be at five West Coast time, seven, seven Dallas time. So they run the gamut. First five games we know about start as early as 11 a.m. and, and as late as 7.30 p.m. So that's probably the, the widest gamut that you can have. And I think uh, this uh, Utah State game will be the uh, uh, earliest start in modern USC football history. I think they there's like a 1909 game with, with Pomona or somebody that started at 9.30. But other than that, uh, and since they've been doing modern record uh, keeping, uh, USC's never played a game that early. Yeah, so it said 1891, they had a 9.30 in the morning game. So maybe oh, maybe 1891, okay, wow. That's <laughs> <laughs> Holy crime. Yeah. Whatever, okay. But, you know, at least the beginning part of the schedule is now defined, and it's, you know, obviously a really tough run. Uh, but the Friday and Thursday games are really the ones that kind of get you. And, you know, it's not great having an 11 a.m. game time with Utah State, and depending on what USC does the week before, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it could be a really excited crowd coming back with victory over Alabama, or a lot of people don't show up because it's 11 a.m. for Utah State, and they, you know, got beat – soundly by Alabama. I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios that could happen, but really the Thursday that you mentioned the the Cal game at the Coliseum to have it at 7 30 PM, as opposed to 6 PM. So it's a huge difference trying to get to the Coliseum. Just, there's no way to have a Thursday game in the Col- Thursday night game in the Coliseum. That's early evening and not night just doesn't work. Right now, 10 30 for the East coast isn't ideal, obviously. That's where you, you know, you want to be on a run where everybody in the country wants to watch you, even on a Thursday night when they got to go to work the next morning. So it's up to you, I think, in those in those games to be attractive enough to, you know, get the country watching you because they can. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's uh, that's the challenge uh, of a schedule like this. Uh, I do think uh, the I like the idea, though, of the Thursday night game just because of the fact that you get the extra time before and after. So uh, I just think, you know, it, it's not exactly a buy, but the Saturday before and after, uh, you're not playing, so it gives you some extra time. I know last year, unfortunately, they played Washington in that game, and by Sunday, USC was without a football coach who didn't make it to practice uh, when they had a Sunday practice. So, I mean, the good news is you've got a Sunday practice last year, having a Sunday practice after that Thursday night game was not the good news for the USC program or its head coach. So all kinds of interesting opportunities uh, come as a result of, you know, playing games on Thursday and Friday night. But, uh, I mean, my per- per- the, the thing I don't like about the Friday night game is it's the third travel week in four, in the first four, and it follows the game at Stanford. So USC gets, gets hit with two road games to start the Pac-12 season against two tough teams. And the second one, they don't get a full week to get ready for Utah. And they have to travel to Utah. So that takes away from your, you know, preparation time, your your rest time and all that. So I think if I'm, you know, the idea at USC and the Pac-12 comes with that schedule, I might say, no, we're not going to do that. You know, we're, you're already opening us. You know, the first Pac-12 game of the year is going to be USC Stanford, and then to throw in, uh, you know, a trip, a second straight trip, with a, a day less uh, to go to Utah, I would have probably said no. 
do something else. Uh, that that just is probably not fair. But you know, if you can, uh, that that's the challenge for your kids. And uh, you know, it's not that USC can't win. You know, every one of those games, I think they can, and you can get on a roll and and really make it happen. But I just think I would have probably objected to just the concept of of a second straight road game with uh, a day's less rest. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean that's why I think that's it's just such a tough run in the beginning part of the schedule to go from you know two of the most physical teams in the Pac-12 back to back on the road uh and then one of them being a Friday so it's even a short week. So it's it's not an easy slate for Clay Helton and company and it, you know but it's it's going to be a trial by fire and you know you, it's a talent this is a talented talented USC football team. So I mean they 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 can certainly win those games, um, but I could see where a rookie head coach, if a couple of things go wrong and then things could kind of spiral, you know, there's, it's, it's a challenge, Dan. It's not like an easy, there's not cupcakes there where you can kind of go through and, and build some momentum. You really have to hit the ground running. And I think that's why fall camp is going to be so important this year, because there is no margin for error. You have to come into the season and start to play well. Yeah. Maybe, you know, if you're going to lose to Alabama anyway and you have a hiccup and you don't play well and you can get right against Utah State, I mean, that's a scenario. But there's just, there can't be some prolonged thing where it's taken you five, six games to get into rhythm. Otherwise, you're going to have a losing record and really things are going to be upside down. Yeah, there's no room for excuses. you got to be right. Uh, this is a team with enough talent to be able to be competitive every single one of those games. And uh, this is not a team that you have to baby. I mean, I you know, and that was the the – Big mistake, obviously, of the Holiday Bowl preparation, where even if the team was limping into that game as much as we were told that it was, and that they needed the time off and they needed the rest and all that, that didn't help them any, that game. And so, you know, you can say, well, they needed the rest. For what? I mean, to what purpose? Uh, you know, to get ready for a solid, fundamental, physically, uh, you know, tough Wisconsin team that wasn't especially talented, you had to get ready to play that kind of football. USC clearly did not. And that was the, you know, there are all kinds of reasons and all kinds of explanations. And uh, from everything we've seen since, you know, Clay clearly understands that is not the way to get ready. And I do think maybe it fell back on the fact that that, that did sustain him two years before when he was the interim coach and they went to Las Vegas and, uh, you know, used, I think, just six of the practices that they could have had. But that was a much more mature team. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they played, a, you know, a Fresno State team with some talent, but not the kind of physicality. And they weren't ready for the physicality that, uh, that Wisconsin threw at them. And uh, obviously, if you're going into this schedule, you're getting, you know, Alabama, the most physical team in the country, uh, Stanford, the most physical team in the Pac-12, and uh, Utah, maybe the most physical defense uh, that you're going to face. And, you know, with a lot of those guys back in the front seven at Utah. So uh, this has to be a team that's got to be ready to play physical football to start with. I think that's a good thing in terms of how they're going to prepare over the summer, how they're going to prepare in August. Uh, I mean, they don't have to guess how those teams are going to play yeah. or how, how ready they have to be. So, uh, but, you know, and, and, and there's no excuse 
that this team doesn't have the physicality. They've got the size. They've got the speed. They've got the depth. Uh, you know, just make it happen. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. It's, uh, it's not a situation where the no excuses thing, I think, is a good point. You can't go in and go like, man, uh, Stanford was really physical. We didn't expect, <laughs> you know, yeah. or man, that Alabama team, they're, they're, they're big, strong and fast physical team. Utah, you know, you, you know, those teams are physical. So it's, it's laid out. I mean, the blueprints there, I think USC is talented enough. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to depend a lot, I think, on the, how they get ready this off season. And we'll start, you know, seeing these summer workouts starting next week. And, you know, that's seven on seven stuff. That's, you know, you're not really going to see a lot of physicality in that, but what fall camp is like, we got to see the first, you know, rendition of Clay Helton spring practice. Now we're going to see his first rendition as a, as running fall camp and see how different it was from years past. Right. And, uh, and how different it will, you know, will be from the, you know, most recent times when we saw when Clay was in charge as well. And, uh, those were more, you know, kind of, uh, you know, were more seven on seven kind of, uh, or NFL, you know, practices for, you know, guys that are 30 year old veterans or whatever. And, and this has to be, and, and when you look at his coaching staff, He's got college coaches. He's got guys that, you know, are used to coaching college kids. That's that's what they want to coach. And I think I think that'll make a difference too. I think they just and it's obvious that they work the offensive and defensive lines harder in the spring than we've ever seen. And um, I think that's going to carry over. And it's it's pretty obvious they're not afraid to run the ball inside and and not just you know inside the tackles. I'm talking about run it right up the you know, that guard center gap. And we haven't seen that in a good while. And, you know, they're going to attack you there. And I think that, you know, first of all, you really, you have to be physical if you're going to do that. And secondly, it really uh, changes, I think, the way teams can defend you because it, it occupies the linebackers in a different way or the safeties if you're going to attack them uh, there. Now, if they can attack Alabama there, it's really going to say some good things about where the, where they go the rest of the season and how they get there. Uh, so I think they just, they got to make it happen in August. And, uh, it's going to be a great, interesting, uh, August football practice, I think. Yeah, certainly will. Uh, well, let's switch gears a little bit. One of the other hot topics on uscfootball.com right now is the Coliseum renovations. And, uh, you had a great, um, if you got, go on the peristyle, if you guys haven't seen it, Dan's post, it should still be pinned uh, about the, the Coliseum renovations. And maybe get you to talk about that a little bit, but Tark had a question too. He said, if USC wants to be like Michigan and Ohio State, what logical reason can they have for not having a 100,000 plus seat stadium? Well, I think the, the, the you know, presumption there is that USC want to be like Michigan and Ohio State. I think that's where they really have to stand up and say, what do they want to be like? I mean, I'm always struck as, as not a, a person, you know, from Southern California to come out here and realize Southern California, I think, had, I don't know if they had barely a million people in the 1920s. And they had the optimism to build in, uh, you know, 25 and 26 to what turned out to be 100,000-seat iconic stadiums, you know, for the Rose Bowl, the first ever, and for the, you know, the Coliseum, the only stadium to host two Olympic Games. I mean, that's an amazing, you know, uh, 
assumption that this community can can sustain these and we can do this. And what bothers me a little bit is the sense of, oh, we can't really do this. We can't keep it as one of the, you know, right now the Coliseum is, I guess, the ninth largest stadium in America. Oh, no, I don't think we can keep it up in the top ten if we redo it, or uh, we really don't have enough money to, to really, really redo it. Uh, and if we don't, you know, put in all this really luxury private box building, we won't have any money because we really got to make it nice for those 2,500 people. And, yeah, it'll be tough for those 10,000 people that get moved. But, you know, this is – and it looks like there's a whole series of, oh, we can't do this and we can't – and that's not – that's not why Southern California is Southern California. It's not why USC is USC. I mean, you don't, I don't think, get where you want to go by, you know, saying, oh, I don't know if we can do this or, or uh, you know, or listening to people who really don't have USC's football program at heart who are, you know, people, historic, you know, conservancy kind of people who don't want the Coliseum to change uh, the look. And so they say, oh, well, if you put a, you know, a, a luxury suites around the entire top of the stadium, which would not change the look inside, for example, that great looking building. Uh, oh, but you might be able to see it from the parking lot of the Natural History Museum. Yes. Yeah, so what? I mean, you know, it's just but it almost looks like those people had a bigger voice in what's happening at USC than did the uh, uh, USC fans and the people who have been supporting USC football for all these years. And uh, to take it down to a projected 77,500 uh, capacity, which would uh, drop it down to, I think, number 25 in the nation, that's really you, – once you get below 80,000, and I talked to the architects about it, they didn't agree, but once you get to below 80,000, you're a second tier. You know, you're not in the very top tier. And I think the Coliseum – with its history, with USC's history, should always be one of the top tier stadiums in the country. I, it's, I think it's that simple. And um, uh, and I think their numbers are off. I mean, the, the, the architect said, for example, we only need that 93,000 for, you know, for two games, Notre Dame and, and, uh, and UCLA. However, in the last five years, USC's played 14 games where the crowd was bigger than 77,500. So that's almost three games a year where, US, where this stadium would not be big enough for the crowds in the last five years. Now, obviously, people were thinking, you know, those last five years, that was a tough time and with the NCAA sanctions and all that. So you've got to be thinking, you know, better times are ahead. And so – to take it down to 77.5 when you have to reasonably or you know, realistically be expecting better times, this seems contrary to uh, you know, what, you know, what logic would tell you. You, know, that you just don't see that. And you know, now you're going to be in a town where your arch rival across town has 15,000 more seats for their home games than you do. Uh, and so – <clears throat> the USC-UCLA game at the Rose Bowl will be, by definition, a bigger game than at the Coliseum just because there's 15,000 more people there. Uh, and the Notre Dame game, for example, Notre Dame has been redoing – they've redone their stadium twice now. Uh, 
and they keep adding seats. So they're going to be well over 80,000 with the, with the new renovations where they add four buildings to the outside of their stadium and all of that. So it just doesn't seem to, you know, fit with the trend of the other big programs in college football. USC would be the only program in the top 25 other than Stanford where they just took out that really old crummy stadium and dropped in a 50,000 seat erector set, you know, on the same property with in less than a year. And give Stanford credit. They've kept the program going at the highest of, of possible levels, but they're not a program that's sustained by their fan base. They're sustained by, they're a whole different, you know, world of their own uh, as a national, you know, outstanding, you know, academic university that recruits nationally. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, their stadium is, uh, is what they, I mean, they're probably worried if they'd have built a bigger stadium, there'd be more USC fans there when they played USC in Palo Alto than, than there are now. So, uh, but other than that, Nobody else in that top 25 group of college football programs has has basically taken away seats, and I just think it's a it's a bad sign. And uh, I know I love the idea that they're going to you know widen the aisles and put in new seats, and and they'll have wider seats and um, you know more knee room and all that kind of thing. Uh, I love that they're being aggressive. I mean they they're they're doing a wonderful job marketing it and promoting it and previewing it to USC fans and, and all of that, the top donors. So, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's wrong. That's, that's, go, that's gone really well, I think. Uh, I just think the concept of, of what they're going to do, you know, to, uh, you know, to renovate it is, is the wrong concept. I just think it's the wrong. They, they just got some things wrong. And, and one would hope it's 19 months before they're going to start construction. So one would hope, that there's enough time to to get them to take another look at it, and and I just think I mean there are very few you know other than the people who are buying, you know signing up for the private boxes, you just there just don't seem to be there doesn't seem to be any support uh, for the way they're going right now. So hopefully uh, you know maybe too if they can have a big enough year this year, that might wake people up and they'd say wait a minute oh hey hold on. And I will say this, the Rams are essentially going for the NFL level of about 80,000 seats for most games. But in their opener, the preseason opener against the Cowboys, and in their regular season opener against uh, Seattle, they want the stadium set up for 92,000, 93,000 people. So even the Rams realize for big games, they want the ability to have everybody, that big crowd, to be able to get in there. And I think USC needs that same that same kind of uh, you know opportunity for their fans. All right, let's uh, move on. Our buddy Dan, Dan from the class of 1962, wrote in. He said, "Hey Ryan and Dan, thanks for all the great information about scholarship limitations in baseball and men's track and field, as well as the lack of softball, men's soccer, and men's cross country in the USC sports program. Is anyone at USC dealing with the inability of Larry Scott to speak up?" For the Pac-12 institutions with the NCAA, the Pac-12 is fast becoming irrelevant nationally because of lack of exposure. No spring sports are televised nationally because of the limitations of the Pac-12 network due to Larry Scott. Fox and ESPN show Division II and Division III sports more than you see Pac-12 sports. Are Lin Swan and Max Nikias going to deal with inept and stubborn Larry Scott, who is ruining the Pac-12? How will we ever 
have a one-loss team in the football championship playoff with Scott being the ineffective leader of the conference. And don't even get me started on his lack of support in opposing sanctions against USC. Thanks for all that both of you bring uh, and bringing these issues to light. Dan from the class of 1962. Yeah, Dan, I mean, I, I do think there are some rumblings uh, in, you know, among the uh the presidents, but not nearly. Enough. I mean, I think this is, that has to be a presidential decision. Uh, and what, what we've heard is that, uh, you know, the athletic directors aren't real happy with Larry Scott at this point. The problem has been that Larry Scott has, this is what we're hearing is that he's been able to circumvent the athletic directors by going directly to the president and the presidents up until now have kind of, you know, gone along with Larry. I mean, obviously they're, they're paying him $4 million a year. No commissioner has ever been paid that kind of money. And, uh, you know, so he, to this point, he's been kind of untouchable. I do think, you know, the decisions for the Pac-12 networks and not broadcasting, you know, uh, games from other areas into LA and not broadcasting LA games into other areas. Uh, I think that's a disaster. This, uh, this uh, announcement that we got this week, the first three weeks of the Pac-12 network, they, you know, detailed all the games. And I guess there's like 15 games. And we're only, in L.A., we're only going to get week two because USC and UCLA play in week two. We're not going to get any games in week one or week three unless you have the Pac-12 national network. But if you have Pac-12 L.A., which, but most everybody does. I don't know how many um, of the cable systems even carry the Pac-12 national network. You're not going to, like week one, you won't see any Pac-12 games here. Week three, you won't see any Pac-12 games here. And I think one of the the things, you know, I watch the Pac-12 network every week because, uh, you know, when I wasn't at a game, because you got to see other Pac-12 teams. Most, you know, most often teams, you know, are going to play USC. And that was really beneficial and, and really worthwhile. And then you'd watch the, you know, their summary show and, you know, in the evening and that kind of thing. And that was, I thought, good programming. For them to now go away from that and that we only get, you know, we'll get to see UCLA and we'll get to see USC. And, you know, the hope is you're at the USC game. So, you know, is it worth it to somebody to even have the Pac-12 network and all you're going to get basically maybe are UCLA games. Uh, and only a couple of those because the majority of USC and UCLA games are going to be on, you know, ABC, ESPN, Fox. Uh, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, as far as I'm concerned, their, their decision this year to go away from, um, you know, basically used to get almost every, every Pac 12 game that was broadcast anywhere in the network. You got it. Now that's not the case. Yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not a great situ- <laughs> it's not a great situation. It doesn't seem to be getting any better, especially with the AT and T part going away with their you know getting rid of that digital side and going with Directv exclusively. It looks like so. I mean that's that's more households that have the Pac-12 network now that won't have it much longer. Right, and you know they were they're basically under twelve million. You know when you're looking at you know uh, Big Ten and uh, SEC, you're well over 60 million. So, uh, 
it's just it's not even national distribution and uh, and yet you know they spent all this money you know for fancy new studios in the Embarcadero and they're paying their executives way more than any other uh you know conference is paying them and then to you know make decisions for example uh, obviously the Big 10 and the SEC decided to partner with uh you know Fox and ESPN and uh and did it much more uh economically and much more financially sound than the uh than the Pac-12 did and didn't feel the need to create seven different networks and you know pay people you know millions of dollars and uh, and it certainly looks to this point like uh most of those decisions have been wrong decisions and uh and it, it USC or USC as a partner in the Pac-12, you're getting lapped by uh, you know the kind of money that is being is available to an Alabama or an Ohio State from their uh, their network deals and their own uh, conference network, and that makes it you know over time that's going to catch up over time those those kinds of dollars when when they're you know with the potential of, of you know, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five million dollars a year more per school uh, than the Pac-12 schools are getting. That's like real money. You know, I mean, speaking of real money, for example, here's the difference in money. I just saw this uh, note: uh, Freedom of Information Act. They, uh, the M Live people, the website that covers the University of Michigan, discovered that it cost. Uh, uh, Harbaugh's team to go to Florida for four days for spring ball, $350,000. Can you, I mean, you just can't even imagine USC spending that kind of money on anything other than salaries. <laughs> you know, but Michigan, you know, has $350,000 that they can do to just take their, their football team to, you know, Orlando for, um, for four days in the spring. I mean, there, it is going to be a battle of, you know, finances. And USC, uh, for a long time, has always been where they could be in those battles. Uh, you just wonder, is that going to be the case going, you know, forward? Does, does, if USC is getting the same money as Washington State and Oregon State and way less money than the people USC is, you know, trying to compete with, uh, that makes it tough. It makes it tough to say, in there with the Ohio States and the Alabamas. Yeah, that, th- is this weird of me? Because three hundred fifty thousand dollars seemed cheap for like to bring a whole football team to Orlando for almost a week. Like, does that seem like you get enough? Well, let's see. I think it broke it down. It was one hundred one thousand dollars for airfare, one hundred and fifty thousand for lodging. It was more like forty or fifty thousand dollars for meals and per diem expenses and that kind of thing. So that's. I don't. I guess I don't know. One hundred and one thousand dollars to fly the team down there. I, I, I don't know. That seems. Yeah. Like, well, you got uh, like you got to have probably a hundred and something guys, right? Like, I mean. Yeah, hundred and some. Oh, he's a, yeah. With the, you're you're taking all the managers and everybody. I yeah, mean, and you got to feed everybody know. and like, man, it just seems like a lot. Of, I mean, it seems like uh it seems like it would be expensive, but yeah, probably probably that would cover it. I don't know. I'm just kind of weird. But I'm I'm just thinking that's probably an expense USC would not i mean that's six weeks of of the athletic director's salary at usc 
I was going to guess like a month, but yeah, you're right. Six weeks of two and a half million dollars divided by 12. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, no, uh, three million now. So three, we're oh, three million. 60, Sorry. Thousand a week. Nice. Um, well, it, actually, today is this today? Is today the first day of Lynn Swan's reign? Am I am I correct here? June first. No, 1st? you're you're a month ahead of yourself. Uh, July first. Uh, July first. Uh, okay. July first. July first. Yeah. All right. So we're you know, we'll have to do a special episode on that day. Yes, um, we will. One month. One month away. One month left of Pat Hayden uh, directing athletics at USC, and then Lynn Swan will take over. All right. Well, one last topic. Uh, we're talking about the NCAA case. So that Stephen Poway wrote this in before uh, the kind of new ruling. So we'll, we'll let you kind of explain what's going on here, but I'll read his question for you. He said he's reading about the NCAA's recent attempt to dismiss Judge Schaller um, from the Todd McNair case. It seems that the NCAA legal quote-unquote dream team has reached a new low, and I quote the LA Times article, while it's unlikely the NCAA can ever receive a fair trial just miles from USC, where students and alumni publish uh, hateful messages uh, about the NCAA with each case development, the court should guard against any public perception of bias arising from the trial judge trial judge's ties to USC, the motion said. To call this kind of behavior on the part of the NCAA legal team sophomoric would be an insult to college freshmen everywhere. But more to the point, how can this trial, now reaching its fifth year, continue to drag on and on and on? Uh, isn't it true that justice delayed is just justice denied? And just how deep are Todd McNair's pockets? Can he really outlast the NCAA whose annual revenue approaches $900 million? So his question is, uh, is this a serious motion or do you think the NCAA is just trying to delay as long as they can in the hopes that Todd McNair will run out of money and eventually be forced to settle? TikTok, TikTok, Steve in Poway. Yeah, Steve, I mean, I don't know if the uh, the bias. I mean, to quote message boards, that's yeah, that's just silly. That's you know, they, you know, whatever they're getting paid for the hourly, you know, fees. Uh, the NCA's lawyers are, I guess, uh, you know, signed up for the P and and everywhere else. And uh, but if you had any self awareness at all, you probably wouldn't make that argument. If you know, if you had any idea how that case went. And how the people on the uh, committee on infractions and how the people acted inside the NCA on the staff, uh, you couldn't in good conscience ever write those words about, uh, you know, the NCA afraid that it won't get a fair hearing after what the NCA did to USC. Uh, uh, clearly that didn't carry any weight at all. What did carry some weight in Judge Schaller getting reassigned, uh, was the fact that, uh, uh, Technically, in California, if a judge has ruled on a case, and then at the appellate level, any part of his ruling gets overturned, he can be uh, uh, recused or reassigned uh, from that case. Uh, the uh, the other party has to just ask for it, and because one of Judge Saller's rulings got not the important ones, not the ones that mattered, but one of them that said. Uh, he also thought that one of the damages to uh, Todd McNair was the fact that he didn't get rehired by USC. And I think the appellate court basically said, well, we're not going to proceed on that one. 
whether the, you know, we just don't know, you know, the, the evidence isn't such that we will sustain that one. So in effect, they overturned one of Judge Schaller's rulings. So technically in California, if that happens, the other side can request that that judge be reassigned, which they did. Um, now, the only thing that we realized, we were thinking about was this silly motion where they said he was biased and it was close to the USC campus, and they're saying really nasty things about us, and we can't get a fair trial, blah, 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 blah. Well, that didn't apply at all. They didn't the, – the, there was no uh, – Schaller himself had said that that doesn't apply. And then in this ruling, uh, the court uh, also did not say that there was any of that. But technically, he uh, he apparently will be reassigned. I don't know if there are any other legal possibilities at this point. Uh, what it does is it probably holds up the the, uh, uh, the case for a little bit because they they have to get a new judge, and then they have to they had already scheduled uh, the case management uh, meetings for the attorneys where they go over and say here's who we want to depose and here's how we're going to do it and here's the extent of what we're going to ask them and all of that. And, you know, knowing that seven of the eight Committee on Infractions members have not been deposed and other people at the NCA and the NCA staff have not been deposed and they haven't gotten all the discovery that they want. So that all has to be negotiated in these meetings, you know, with the judge. And so that's probably been, been put off some. I don't, I don't think there's any question. Uh, I don't know that it impacts it in, in any other way at this point. And as some people have pointed out, it gives the NCA one less uh, opportunity if this stands. It gives them one less opportunity to appeal and, and you know, fight the judge's uh, connection to USC as an alumnus. Uh, so whether that's good or bad, uh, you know, that, that's gone. But, uh, but the case may, uh, may take a little more time. I think we were looking at maybe uh, getting to trial sometime after January. That may still be possible but uh but uh, you know it's, it's, as you say justice delayed justice tonight uh the nca doesn't want justice in this case they do want todd to go away i mean i, I think you know they they'd love for him to get hit by a bus i think is is what you know they'd be hoping for at this point uh and i don't think he's going away i don't think there's any question at this point todd is you know he's in it for the long haul as as is as his parent. I mean, basically, they have stolen his life and his career from him, the NCAA. <coughs> Excuse me, because they needed they needed a fall guy. They needed somebody to connect to USC so they could give USC the maximum penalties. And so, unfortunately, Todd was the running back coach and uh, the closest one that they could tie to Reggie Bush. So that's what they did. Uh, and they're gonna, I think, eventually pay for that. But I guess in, in a lot of ways, maybe they think, well, we'll all be gone by that time or we'll be <laughs> retired or move to another job or somebody else is going to have to pay for it. And we got plenty of money. And so what? We just write a big check. You know, at least we keep pushing it off and pushing it off so we don't have to, you know, the last thing they're interested in at this point is justice uh, or fair, you know, a fair hearing. I mean, that was, it was obvious from you know the whole time that 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 was never uh, never consideration by the NCA, and they they know it deep down uh, they know it and they're in a bubble 
and think nobody should have the right to question them and can't believe. I mean, I think they're still in denial. I, I mean, they've never been in this position in court uh, where, you know, this is all starting to come out. And that's something they don't know how to deal with. And they're basically, I think, you know, pretty much in denial. And we'll see. We can't wait for this to happen. I mean, for those who think, I mean, this is the question I know people wonder, you know, what about, uh, you know, a settlement and all of that? The longer this goes, I just think it's going to be really hard to settle. Uh, the, the money gets is getting to a certain point where I don't know if, you know, they could say they can write a check, but they'll write one if the, uh, if the court tells them to. But I can't imagine now that they could just say, well, we'll write one and settle this thing because it doesn't look like they care. I mean, it, you know, they, you would have thought if they would have wanted to keep the emails from coming out and to keep the maliciousness from coming out and keep the, you know, the fact that they broke so many of their own rules and lied about it, you would have thought they'd have just, you know, settled now. But I just think they're in a place where they just don't think they have to deal with anybody. And even though the public has obviously in the six years completely turned around on this case, and you can't find anybody you know, that, that thinks the NCA, you know, did this in any honorable or fair way. I mean, the fact that USC, unfortunately, hasn't stepped up and defended itself uh, probably means USC hasn't gotten the benefit uh, that they could have gotten the way this case has turned out. Obviously, you know, Todd McNair, I think, you know, the world has turned around on him and feels like he really got a, you know, a horrible deal. But, uh but it hasn't turned in USC's favor as much as it probably could have. But, but that's where we are here thinking, if only, or what if, but uh, none of that's happened. Yeah. Well, we got one more kind of follow-up to that, Dan. Um, it's, you said, do you see the NCAA being dissolved due to mounting litigation, inadequate enforcement of its own rules, and he put North Carolina football in parentheses, and it's bias against certain programs. Additionally, are any former USC players a part of this new concussion lawsuit against the NCAA? Love the show, Marcel in Diamond Bar. Well, so I think what could happen is that the NCAA, the whole enforcement uh, and uh, uh, infractions process could be dissolved. That people could say, look, there's no possible way that you can do this. I mean, let's face it. The head of the Committee on Infractions right now is Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. Oh, wait. The commissioner of the Southeastern Conference is also the head of the Committee on Infractions? Huh. Huh, how about that? Boy, I bet all this is really shaking. You know, I mean, it's just, you can't do it. I'm sorry, you cannot do it. <coughs> and, uh, you know, and it's obvious. I mean, you know, Missy Conboy from Notre Dame couldn't be on that committee, but she did. She was. They brought Josephine Petuto in as the avenging angel from Nebraska to come after USC. I mean, there were people on that committee who had access to grind. It was obvious. Paul D. wanted to be able to give somebody more penalties than uh, Miami had when he was the AD there. Uh, there were just all kinds of things that there's no possible way those people, you know, can be fair. And it was obvious they weren't, and they couldn't be. And there was, a, you know, an agenda to take USC down that really squared with what a lot of rest, a lot of the people in the country thought was the right thing to do. 
and that's what they did. But uh, so if that happened where they said, you know, we're going to create an outside agency, uh, retired federal judges and federal, you know, prosecutors and things like that, we're going to turn the cases over to them. I think that might be something that, that could eventually come out of this because I can't imagine the NCAA still wants to be doing all this because, you know, they don't want to do anything about North Carolina. They absolutely don't want to do that. And they know they didn't want to do anything about Ohio State. They didn't want to do anything about Oregon. They might have wanted to do something about Miami, and they screwed it up. Uh, they don't want to do anything about Ole Miss unless the SEC wants them to do something about Ole Miss. Uh, so this is a problem uh, for the NCAA, and they know it. I mean, people used to be proud. It was a resume enhancer to be on the Committee on Infractions. It no longer is. Uh, you know, those people like, you know, Missy Conboy and Josephine Batuto, where they used to brag about being on the Committee on Infractions, they know this is not something that makes them look good on their on their resumes. They don't, and they keep it quiet now at this point. So, so I could see that part happening. I don't see the NCAA ever dissolving. I mean, there's 900 million reasons uh, why they're not gonna they're not gonna dissolve. And uh, you know, that's there's just no way that that probably ever uh, you know ever happens. But boy, it'd be nice to get them, um, you know, redefined in terms of what they can do and what they uh, and how they should do it. And where they have to be transparent about it. I mean, they they were clearly uh, not transparent whatsoever in terms of the USC case. I mean, USC, the, the attorneys for USC, by the way, I don't know if anybody knows this, uh, the attorney for USC in the NCAA case was a man, a, a Birmingham lawyer named William King. Do you know what William King is doing now? He is the Southeastern Conference Commissioner for legal affairs. So USC was defended by an attorney who is now the uh, the top legal officer of the Southeastern Conference. Probably not the kind of you know. <laughs> I wonder who he'll be rooting for in the uh, in uh, in the USC Alabama game. Wow, but, crazy. Uh, I mean, it's just that's the kind of craziness that uh, that happens. That you just you know you've got so many conflicts that the NCA can't do these fairly. All right, Dan. Well, great stuff. Uh, glad we got to get you on this week and talk about all the stuff going around. A lot of, lot of news around USC and just wanted to talk about all the different topics and stuff. And we should have some on-field stuff to report next week when we talk to you, or at least later next week. So we'll look forward to having you on again, and uh, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, we look forward to next week, too. But as we say, uh, stay tuned. There's always something happening uh, involving USC. Uh, just no time off. Definitely no time off. All right. Well, thanks, Dan, and everyone else. Thank you so much for tuning into the Peristyle Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you next time. Most people know that buying or selling real estate is no small undertaking. Understanding the market value of your home, pricing, advertising, closing, and perhaps even selling personal property along the way are all examples of the real estate journey. And Michael Moline Real Estate has the experience to help make that journey an enjoyable one. Southern California real estate inventories are at historic lows, so there is no better time than now to sell your residential property. Whether you're moving into a bigger home or downsizing, personal property is often a component of the real estate 
estate transaction. Michael Moline Real Estate has industry expertise to help you with both your real property and your personal property as you get ready to transition. Michael Moline Real Estate specializes in properties located on the west side of Los Angeles and the southern San Fernando Valley communities. Allow Michael Moline Real Estate to give you a free comparative market analysis and home valuation so you know how much your home is worth today. Contact Michael Moline at michaelmolinerealestate.com. That's Michael, M-O-L-I-N-E, realestate.com. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 